Hey church, uh, so glad that you're joining us today. We want to say happy Father's Day. We want to celebrate and uh, appreciate and honor and bless uh, all the fathers, all the dads of our church by giving you guys a small gift from us. And so to receive that gift, we just ask that you text COTB DAD to 97000, COTB DAD to 97000. And we also want to acknowledge that Father's Day can be a difficult day for some. Uh, whether it be because of a lost loved one or for whatever reason it may be. Uh, We as a church just want you to know that we are mindful of you and we are uh, thinking about you today. Uh, Also, real quick, a special announcement about our next sermon series that's going to be launching in two weeks. Um, In light of the national and global conversation right now on race and justice, uh, we felt like it was appropriate that we uh, postpone our, our originally scheduled series for the month of July, and instead we're going to launch a series uh, on the topic of race and justice from a biblical perspective. And so we just encourage you guys to uh, tune in for that, mark your calendars, and uh, I believe we're going to learn a lot and and we're going to see what God has to say uh, about that. Um, With that said, though, I want to uh, finish Colossians faithfully. We have only two more weeks left in Colossians, and I want us to have a good handle on what Colossians is trying to teach us, what uh, this letter um, uh, is trying to teach us today. I want Colossians to address, you know, current events and uh, the topic of race and justice, but only as it allows us to. I don't want to be in a place where I'm trying to force those topics into the text because I don't think that's biblical preaching. And so uh, we want to finish Colossians uh, faithfully, and we'll talk more about race and justice uh, in the month of July. But I am grateful that I think today our passage uh, does shine some light on relevant issues today and how we engage uh, in, in a divided world. And so, so let's dive in together. We're in uh, Colossians chapter 4. Uh, Paul's been instructing the Christians in Colossae uh, about putting off of this, this old self, put to, to put to death and just put away uh, all that is earthly. And in Colossians chapter 3 verse 12, there, there might be a slide for you. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so this is kind of, this is the the lens in which we're going to go about um, talking about every relationship that's mentioned in in Colossians. Um, We are are to be clothed with Christ. We are to be clothed like Christ. We are to put on the garments of his grace because that character that we put on actually affects every relationship. And Paul would list those in Colossians 3 and even in Colossians chapter 4. Our passage today uh, is one in which Paul is addressing one more relationship uh, that church ought to have in the world, and it's the relationship with the outsider. And and Paul would encourage us and encourage Colossae to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, even towards the outsider who is the, the unbeliever. And I think Paul would say this because character affects every relationship. Character makes its way into every relationship, whether it's the church that Paul addresses, whether it's the home and the family, the husband, the wife and children that he addresses, whether it's the bondservant and master in the workplace that he addresses, or whether it's the believer with the unbeliever. 
Character affects every relationship. You know, I think in our world today, we put too much hype and too much credit on compatibility. If we're just compatible, we'll get along. But I think character is better than compatibility. See, wherever you see character built up, you're going to see relationships built up. But wherever you see character broken down and a breakdown in character, you're going to see a breakdown in relationship. Paul addresses the outsider He addresses the unbeliever, how the believer, how the Christian ought to live and act and relate towards those in Colossae who are not of the same faith. He addresses the outsider. You see, we are experiencing and we know that in our world this is not new, but it's it's the news right now that we live in such a divided world, right? We we live in, in a very polarized world. And I think what this passage is trying to teach us is that we are divided by many things, but our greatest divide, and I want you to follow me, our greatest divide is not by skin color. It's not by socioeconomic class. It's not by culture. It's not by politics. Our greatest divide is one by faith. Our greatest divide is by faith. And let me explain. See, two Christ followers who are of different skin colors actually have more in common than, a, than with a non-believer of the same skin color. You know, they might look like you. They might talk like you. They might have the same background as you. They might dress like you. You know, they might actually do a lot of things that are just like you. But in light of God's kingdom, they don't share the same citizenship. They, they, their, their eternal destination couldn't be any further from where you are, right? In fact, the Bible says a lot about this. In, in Corinthians, it says that, that even people of different skin color, you can take Jews and Gentiles, but in Christ, they're made one body. Ephesians says that we're made one family. This is not friends. This is, he, he says he's made us one family, which makes me, with people of different cultures and ethnicities and skin colors, it makes me a brother to them. We have become brothers and sisters in Christ. So Jesus did that. Jesus, by the application of his blood, has made us one family. And his blood is one color. It's not black or white or yellow or brown. His blood is one color, and by his blood, we're made one family. And so our greatest divide in the world today, there is division amongst all these other things that that need to be reconciled. But our greatest divide, through God's perspective is one of faith. And so I think as we look at this passage, Paul is addressing the outsider, but I think it also applies to every divide that we face in humanity. And so what Paul is trying to get us to see, the the big picture is this. The big picture of this passage is that we are the instruments that God uses to build bridges. So let me say that again. We are the instruments that God uses to build bridges. Bridges, And we need bridges because not everyone stands where we stand, right? Not everyone is where we are. We are here and there's times people are over there. We are here, but they're over there. And so this applies to all kinds of divide, but especially when it comes to the division of faith. 
right? We all know what that's like to be divided. We all know what that's like when we're over here, but they're over there. It's not even just about faith. We're divided by all different things, right? We're on one side and, and they're on the other, right? You, you, you're over here, but they're over there. You want this, but they want that. All the married couples should be like, yes and amen. I know what that's like, right? If, it just, if from where you are, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, where you, you believe this, but they believe that, right? I want this, but they want that. I have this conviction, but they have a different conviction, right? And how do we, how do we build that bridge? You know, when we're saying this, but they're saying that, right? See, if you find yourself in a place as you live your life, where you, you're here, but they're over there, our first response should not be, man, that's unfortunate. Our first response should be, what can I do? You know, we don't look at people that are divided and say, well, that's, that's good for them, and I'm just going to stay in my corner. When there is division, whether by skin color, politics, by culture, ethnicity, by faith, our our response should not be, especially for the church, it should not be, well, that's good for them or that's unfortunate. Our response should be, what can I do? Paul is encouraging us as a church to be one that builds bridges. And if there's any people group, if there's any group of people on earth that should know what bridges look like, that should know what it's like to be a bridge, it should be the church. You know, a few weeks ago here um, in downtown Chicago, after the unjust killing of George Floyd, you saw in the news there, was, there were national protests, and even in Chicago, and a majority, vast majority of them are there to, to peacefully protest, right, and stand for, for equity and stand for justice and to, to call for a reform in our systems and in our nation. But yet, you know, in light of that, there was some unfortunate rioting and looting. And what you saw or what I saw in, in the city of Chicago is that all throughout the city of downtown Chicago, what I saw were, were bridges being what? Bridges being lifted up. Bridges that, that, that were, were there so that people from one side could drive across to the other. Those bridges were lifted up all throughout the city so that people on one side could not get to the other side. That's the effect of when bridges are lifted rather than bridges being built. And this lasted for several days. I, I remember just kind of driving through and I couldn't get through the city the way I, I normally could. You would have to take a detour, a longer route. It would cost you more time. All because bridges that were meant to be laid down were lifted up. And so that makes us ask the question, you know, as we think about our assignment as a church, this is one assignment, not, not the only, but one assignment of the church. You, you see this in Colossians 4 today. One of the assignments of the church is to be one that builds bridges in light of the kingdom of God. So it makes me ask the question, because I think it starts with you and it starts with me. You know, is there a pattern in my life? You know, let's begin there. Is there a pattern in my, pattern in my life in which just around the people in my life, am I laying down more bridges or am I burning more bridges? Am I walking in a, in a way, am I speaking in a way that's laying down bridges and is inviting people to come in? Or, or do I live and talk in such a way that's driving people out? Are we that bridge? 
And Paul is going to address this in uh, Colossians 4, verse 2 to 6. So he's talking about building bridges, and he lays out three ways that we can be uh, ones that build bridges. Number one is this. To be a, a one that builds bridges, we must be watchful in prayer. Watchful in prayer. Colossians 4, 2. You know, if you have your Bible open, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful and in with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer. So Paul is encouraging the church in Colossae to keep up, to not give up, to persevere in their prayer, right? To continue in it, being watchful and with thanksgiving, right? And he's asking them to pray for him. Paul's saying, pray for me, pray for us. He's saying, pray for me and Timothy so that God would open doors for the word, for the gospel to go forth. He's asking uh, for God to open a door to declare the mystery of Christ to who? to the outsider, to the one who's not standing where he's standing. This is incredible because you got to understand, Paul's not, again, in a Starbucks writing this letter. Paul is in jail and his prayer, and he's asking Colossae to pray for him, not for his release, but for their release. Paul from prison is praying for their salvation, for their freedom, for their rescue. Can you imagine that? How selfless and how kingdom-minded Paul is, right? He desires their conversion. He desires their union with God. He, he understands that this kind of work is no small task. I think he understands that this is, in fact, humanly impossible, which is why he says we got to pray, Because he's saying this is not something that can be done in human strategy or human strength. To declare the mystery of Christ. To see doors open and hearts open, ears open, eyes open. That requires the divine intervention of God. Paul is self-aware but not self-reliant. He knows his need of God. You know what drives us to prayer is the self-awareness not self-reliance. The self-awareness that we need God. And he begins building this bridge with the outsider through the work of prayer. He calls us, the church, to persevere in watchful prayer. To understand a little bit about what that means, to be watchful in prayer, there's a commentary by the name of Peter O'Brien, and he says that Paul is not simply speaking of attention and engagement in prayer as opposed to a humdrum and lethargic praying. He says the prayer they are to persist in is for the kingdom, or for, is for the coming of God's kingdom. What he's saying is that we are to be watchful and awake to the kingdom of God. We are to be praying and asking and expectant of the kingdom of God. He's saying, get your eyes on the kingdom of God. He's saying, there's a lot of things on earth, but get your eyes on the kingdom of God. He's saying, we are to be seeing and we are to be serving and we are to be building according to God's kingdom and not ours. So Paul is praying that the outsider, that man would be reconciled to God. And Paul knows that this is no small task. In fact, in fact, any kind of reconciliation is no small task. Every type of of reconciliation is a task that needs God's intervention. 
You know, you might have heard or you might know of John M. Perkins. He's an author and a, a civil rights activist. And I've been just reading upon some of his work, and he's, he's close to 90 years old, and, and he, he talks about a time where he, he lived through a time, like he doesn't just study history, he, he was part of history. He lived through a time when there was uh, fountains that were for white people and then for the colored people. And he, 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 was, he was really beaten in jail for, for just because of his skin color. And, and you know, this is what he says about racial re- reconciliation. He says the problem of reconciliation in our country and in our churches is much too big to be wrestled to the ground by plans that begin in the minds of men. He says, this is a God-sized problem. It is one that only the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can heal. It requires the quality of love that only our Savior can provide. And how true is that? Right? And if this is true of racial reconciliation, how much more true is this for reconciling man to God? See, prayer is just simply acknowledging our need for God and asking Asking God to open a door that we are not and never meant to open in our own strength. I was thinking about Paul's prayer here when he's saying, pray that there may be a door opened to declare the mystery of Christ. It reminded me of my son Benjamin when he was a lot smaller and my wife and I were uh, training him to sleep in his own room. Uh, In those days, there were many nights when Benjamin would, would leave his room and and then start to walk over to our room, and we can hear his, his loud footsteps um, coming towards our way and towards our bedroom. And he was at a height where he, can cut, he could barely reach the doorknob, but he wasn't strong enough. His hands weren't big enough to grab the doorknob and turn it and open the door. And so we're, we're lying in bed, and you hear his footsteps, and you hear his small little hands reaching for the doorknob and, and kind of fidgeting around and trying to twist it and trying to turn it. You can hear him straight struggling, right? And so, you know, we just do what every good parent will do, right? We just pretend we're sleeping. And, um, and, and, you, you, and we milk every last second we have till, till, till we say, okay, th- th- you know, we got to go open that door. And so we just milk it as much as we can, I mean, to a point where he's just pretty much crying in front of our door. And so I have to get up out of the bed and, uh, and I open the door. And, and there are many nights where we had to give in, because my son is knocking at the door. And I think this picture of my son, uh, of, a, of a small kid trying to open a door, but he can't, is the picture of our struggle in evangelism. It's the picture of our struggle in trying to open doors that we were never meant to open. It's the picture of our struggle in building bridges with our own strength, right? We can try it on our own and in our own strategy, but we, we were never meant to open that door. In fact, Scripture never says that we are the ones to open that door. Scripture says in Matthew, it says, ask, seek, and knock. Knock and what? The door will be opened to you. That's prayer. And so in order to be one that builds bridges, Paul says, first, be watchful in prayer. Number two, he says this. It says that in order to be building bridges, we need to be walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom. Colossians 4, 5. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of our time. So he says, look, he says, the best use of our time is to walk in wisdom. There's no no mystery to that. He's saying if you're not walking in wisdom, you're wasting your time. 
And, and he uses the word wisdom in every chapter, sometimes more than once. In Colossians 1.9, 128, 2.3, 3.16, and 4.5. When he speaks of wisdom, he's not talking about how much theology we know. When he's talking about wisdom, he's, he's referring to understanding God's will. Someone that says, I get it. I know what, ple- what pleases the Lord. I know what honors the Lord. And he's saying, walk in that. So someone who walks in wisdom is someone that wakes up and says, Lord, I, wanna, I want you to help me align my life, my heart, my mind, my behavior, my words, everything. Align it to your will and your way and your desire. And any moment where I want to go left and I want to go right, bring me back to your will. That's what Paul's talking about. Walk in wisdom, in, in God's will. Right? And he's not just saying in what we do, you got to hear me out, but he's saying in how we go about it. Not just in what we do, but in how we do it. In other words, we're not just Christians who do good works. We are Christians redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ to do good works, but in a good way. We are called to do good works, but in a good manner. So let me, let me explain it like this. It's one thing to... Um, to serve food to somebody, it's a very good work. It's a good thing. It's a good service. But we, we all know that it's one thing to cook and, and, and make food for someone. But what's just as important is how you invite them in and how you set the table and where you have them sit and how you bring the food and how you treat them at the table. See, we've all been in restaurants where, man, the food is amazing, but the service is not, right? Amen by myself. And it doesn't make you say, man, I want to come back. Even though the food was good, when the service is horrible, there's tension. And what Paul is saying is, man, we got to do good works, but also in a good way. Because the Christian's behavior affects the non-Christian's belief. That's what he's saying. If we want to be one that builds bridges, we got to understand that our lives and our character matters. It affects the outsider. And how amazing is that though, that God can open doors for you, that God can open doors for me to share your faith, to share about Jesus, that there will be times when people might ask you about Jesus. How awesome is that? That there might be a time in your life when someone at work randomly comes to you and wants to know about your church, about Christianity, right? Not because you have a title in church, not, you know, not because of what you know, but they'll ask simply because they see how you live, How beautiful is that? That just because of the way you live, there might be someone that says, I want to know more. See, we are people, instead of laying down stumbling blocks, right? Blocks for people to stumble. Man, we want to, we want to lay down a bridge for people to be saved. And, and it begins with us. It begins with how we walk. How do we walk? How do we live? What kind of choices are we making? How do we respond? How do we relate? To walk in wisdom is what Paul calls us to do. And one of the ways that we actually walk in wisdom is, is, is to be winsome with our words, which leads me to my last point. So Paul is encouraging us as people who are to be building bridges in light of God's kingdom 
to bring reconciliation between man and God and even from man to man. We need to be watchful in prayer. We need to be walking in wisdom. And last but not least, Paul says that we need to be winsome with our words. Winsome with our words. I think this needs to be talked more about in church. You know, when we talk about evangelism, it's just about sharing the gospel or inviting people to church. But rarely have we talked about that what we say and how we talk in everyday language matters in our evangelism and witness, right? Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Some of you guys just got hungry right now. Talking about salt and seasoning, right? But let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Always. And I don't know if you guys have thought this through, but I began to realize that, you know, we as human beings, I don't know if you notice this, but we're always talking. Some less, some more. But we're always talking, we're always communicating, we're always emailing, we're always texting, we're always uh, uh, posting, whether it's, you know, back in the day with AIM or Facebook and Facebook Messenger, Instagram, Snapchat, TikToking. We're always communicating, we're always talking, Right? And I've heard that if our words were to fill a page on a, uh, 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 on a uh, our words to fill a page, that on average, it would be a 54-page book each day. That's crazy. I don't know if that's true, and maybe you want to try that out. But on average, if our words to, were to fill a page, it would be a 54-page book each day because we're always talking. But the question I have is this. If someone were to read your book f- filled with your words— what would they say about you? You know, and more importantly, what would they say about Jesus? And so our words are always coming out. You know, whether it's verbally or through uh, writing, our words are, are always coming out. And the thing is, our words have impact. You know, Scripture teaches us, you know this, that our words have the power of life and death. You know, our words have the power to, to build people up and to break people down. Our words have the power to, to inform or to insult. Our words have the power to, um, to unite people and also to divide people. Our words have the power to heal people. Our words also have the power to hurt people. You know, there is no relationship, not one, whether in marriage, uh, in family, friendship, in the workplace, or just with your neighbor that isn't made stronger or weaker by the way you choose and use your words, right? Words are powerful. In fact, there's a, there's a verse in Psalm um, that talks about how the tongue, right? How the tongue is like, like it's sharpened like a sword, but, it, but, it's, but it's aimed like an arrow. And, and, and what that means is that it's sharpened like a sword, but it's aimed like an arrow because it can strike at a long distance. You know, that's not only deep, and that, but that's true, right? That just one post to someone far away can hurt them or, or heal them. Our words are powerful. And so if, and so if we are to um, continue to be a people that's talking and communicating, Paul says, you know, let our words and let our speech always be gracious, That when someone hears it, let it be full of grace to their ears. Let it be seasoned with salt. In other words, when he says always, he's saying there is never a time when it's okay to be ungracious. I want you to to hear me on that. There is never a time where where, where you're justified to, to be ungracious in your words. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious 
And so if we are to build bridges where there are divides, we have to consider not only the content of our speech, we have to consider the manner of our speech. You know, this passage should make us think about our words and maybe think about our words lately, maybe think about our words to people in our life in recent times. Are these seasoned with salt? And you might be asking, man, what does that even mean? I, I had to actually study and understand this myself. And, you know, you know, at first glance, we think seasoning with salt, you know, it makes me think about, you know, something I do on a nice piece of ribeye, right? And uh, you season it to make it more enjoyable. And we think about food. But Paul's not thinking about steak, right? He's talking about our words. He's saying to be seasoned with salt is much more deeper than in adding flavor and making it enjoyable. See, you got to understand that there's so much more to what he's saying here. See, before, we were, before human beings were able to go to Home Depot and buy a refrigerator so that our food doesn't spoil and go bad, there was a time in human history where the alternative was salt. They used salt to preserve food from going bad, from, from, from spoiling. It was used as an agent of purity, okay? Now, now, I want you to see where I'm going with this. Salt was used as an agent of preservation for something that's good to make sure it doesn't go bad. And so to have our speech seasoned with salt, listen, it means that we weigh our words and we watch our words so that there there aren't any impurities. And so by the saltiness of our speech that we may preserve and keep something that's good from actually going bad. Eugene Peterson, he paraphrases in the Message Bible with this verse. He says, be gracious in your speech. The goal is to bring out the best in others in a conversation, not put them down or cut them out. There's a parallel passage in Ephesians 4.29. There should be a slide. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace. There it is again. That it may give grace to those who hear. And so let me just point out real quick, to, be, to, to have our speech uh, be gracious and seasoned with salt, here's what it's not. Our words should not include gossip and slander and lying and cursing and divisiveness and defensiveness and carelessness and arrogance and boasting and impurities. Our words should not be hard and harsh and harmful and hurtful. Rather, our words should be thoughtful, engaging, inviting, hospitable, kind, encouraging, edifying, wholesome, winsome. I can go on and on. But our words should be weighed. Our words should, should cause wonder and interest to those that are listening that want to say, I want to know more. I want to know what you know. It calls, calls us to be gracious in what you say, how you say it, why you say it, when you say it, and where you say it. So that our words can be a bridge. And listen, th- this doesn't just apply to the outsider. This doesn't just apply to those that are not Christians. Paul's not saying, hey, whenever you're around non-believers, put on your A-game, right? He's saying, make sure you watch your words. That's not what he's saying. He, I think he's saying that in all of life, we're always a witness. There is no on and off switch. And I think this applies to everyday life. And so here's the big question. The big question is then, how are we to have grace in our words? How are we who is sinful and depraved and wretched and in our flesh and 
spiritual battle going on, how are we to have grace in our words? Here it is. It's to have grace in our hearts. If we are to have grace in our words, then we have to have grace in our hearts because the battle doesn't begin with our words. The battle begins in our heart. Matthew 12, 34 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Did you know that our words are just messengers of the heart? You know, the tongue is just a tool that the heart uses to reveal its condition. It's like an MRI scan. It tells you with our words, it tells you what's going on in the heart, right? What's going on inside of us. Our words are at the mercy of our hearts. You know, if, if your heart and my heart is full of anger and bitterness and pride, arrogance, prejudice, racism, you know, insecurity, selfishment, uh, selfishness, uh, ego, entitlement, then what happens? Our words will actually try to tell us that that's in our heart. But we never pay attention or we just don't care. So therefore, our hearts must change. Our hearts must be full of grace for our words to be full of grace. You know, when we have God's heart, you know what happens? We care for people more than our perspective. When we have God's heart, then we're more interested in connecting with people instead of correcting people. And so we need God's heart. And when our hearts are emptied of Jesus, our, our words are emptied of grace. And so our words can be deadly when our hearts are not living and dwelling in his grace. A scholar by the name of Douglas Moo, um, with regard to the tongue, he says, there's no other member on the body or of the body, perhaps, that wreaks so much havoc on the godly life. What he's saying is that the tongue, out of all the members of the body, wreaks the most havoc on the godly life. He says, bad things don't produce good things. And so a person who is not right with God and walking daily in his presence cannot consistently speak pure and helpful words. Which leads me to my last thing here, which is this is why we turn to Jesus in every moment. Because God in his divine power, he has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. In other words, in Jesus, we have all that we need for life and godliness, which includes our words. And so instead of making excuses for what we say and how we said it, you know, we need to be inviting Jesus even into our heart and even into our words um, for, for life and godliness so that we realize that God has given us and will give us the ability and he's given us everything we need to share the gospel when we don't know what to say, to have hard conversations you know, with our spouse or, or, or with our friends or with people at work, to do it in a constructive way, to talk to our children with grace when they don't deserve it, amen, by myself, to disagree without divide, to deal with irrational people in a gracious and loving way, to still be winsome to those who have wronged us. God has given us everything we need for our words to build bridges. And only the gospel Only the gospel says that Jesus became that bridge for us. Now, hear me out. The gospel according to John chapter 1, 14 says that Jesus was the word and he is the word and that word became flesh. There's the bridge. The word became flesh and and follow me. And that flesh dwelt among us. That word dwelt among us. And that word, listen, listen, was full of grace and truth. 
That's John 1.14. Jesus is the Word, and that Word became flesh, and that Word dwelt among us, and that Word was what? Full of grace and truth. Where does Paul get the language for our words to be full of grace? It's because Jesus was full of grace. And so this week, I want to just ask you to um, invite the Lord and to search your heart and to examine your life as you reflect on this passage You've got to consider who is the outsider in your life. And as I finish, I just want to encourage us, may we be watchful in prayer, walking in wisdom, and winsome with our words. Would you pray with me?